BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hello and welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza, and today's guest is comedian, writer, actor, and author Michael Ian Black. And I'm using Michael's awesome children's books in his I'm series, I'm Sad, I'm Bored, I'm Worried, and hopefully more to come, to discuss how to talk to kids about these kinds of tricky feelings. We also talked about the big picture of raising children and Michael's perspective on the state of boys from his op-ed in the New York Times as a reaction to the mass shooting in Parkland. And then stick around for the show notes because unfortunately I've received a lot of questions about talking to kids about recent horrifying events and I wanted to address that in this episode. Thanks for listening and for continuing to check in. I have an unlikely an awesome guest today. Thank you, Michael Ian Black. Wait, why unlikely? Well, because, I mean, you're an incredible children's book writer, but you it seems like you have a huge audience for your comedy and your acting and your writing for adults. No? Oh, right, but I'm raising humans. <laughs> right, and I bet you're raising good humans is my guess. I'm not, I'm not willing to say that, but I'm definitely raising humans. How old are they? <laughs> 18 and uh, 16. So the 18 year old, you're close to knowing <laughs> whether or not that one's a good one, right? Yeah, he's fine. Yeah, he's fine. Well, you know, that's kind of a question that I have for you, but I was going to ask later, but maybe I'll ask you right. Maybe we'll just jump right into it. What what would that mean for you? Like when you're both your kids are adultish over 18? Yeah. What would you hope for them? How would you imagine that they're good humans? First and foremost, that they're kind and uh, empathetic. And then second, that they're rich. That's really, those are the only two criteria, I think. Yeah, I mean, I guess I would say I, I hope that they're kind. I hope that they're empathetic. I hope that they uh, feel like they have purpose and that they have community and that they are unafraid to seek help or to seek love or to ask for what they need, because I think it's also incumbent on good people to not just give, but to, to take. And I mean, take in a, in a, in a kind of what, one, one of our purposes I feel like is to give love. And so when you ask for love, you're giving somebody else the opportunity mm. to give it to you. And so when you take that love, that's, that's actually giving somebody a gift. I think. I, that's lovely. You wrote an article, uh, uh-huh. was it last year in the op-ed in the New York times? Yes, I did. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because I thought it was such an important thing to bring up and it still continues to be such a such a big topic. Well, right after the Parkland shootings in Florida, 
I just was feeling really despondent. I, I had been following as like most people, I have been sort of following the spate or epidemic or whatever you want to call it, of mass shootings and especially gun violence, uh, school shootings in my case, since Sandy hook, because I, I live next door to Sandy hook and it, it, was obviously traumatizing for that community and for the surrounding communities. And I had focused a lot of my ire at gun manufacturers and their mouthpiece, the NRA. After Parkland, while not taking any of the blame away from those other groups, I also started looking at it from a perspective that I didn't see anybody else talking about, even though it was so obvious that the people who are committing these crimes are boys. They're always boys. And I didn't feel like anybody was really talking about that. Maybe because it was so, so obvious that people weren't seeing it. And so I was, I was just, I wrote an article about that and, and questioning why, what's going on with boys that they're doing this. In particular, it's white boys, uh, these, these kinds of shootings. Um, it's almost always white boys. And I just, I want, I wanted to understand why. So I wrote an article about it. Raising a boy, because he's now 18, have you thought about raising a vulnerable, more emotionally literate boy? I have. I've thought a lot about it. I've tried to do it. But part of the difficulty is that my own emotional literacy is pretty stunted because the way I grew up and the way that I perceived masculinity and manhood and learning how to parent a boy has also been about learning, uh, has been about unlearning how to be a boy uh, in my own case. And it's hard because these are deep, uh, really deep seated and deep-rooted feelings and, and, and deep-rooted paradigms for how boys should be. And so it's been a challenge, uh, of course, to unlearn the things that I dislike about myself and try not to foist them on my own kids because it affects boys and girls, obviously. And I'm doing my best. But, you know, I see a lot of the same behaviors that I engaged in and continue to engage in at times with him, you know, it's a, a lack of wanting to ask for help, a kind of shutting down emotionally when he feels frustrated or vulnerable. You know, I try to talk to him about these things and I think he hears it to a certain extent, but it's also incumbent on me to model the kind of behavior that I hope to see from him. It's easier for me to talk about it sometimes than it is for me to do it. How do you find that you're doing it? I mean, have you seen a change over these 18 years? I find that I'm doing it more than I used to. And it's been purposeful. You know, it's, it's, it's hard for me to say to my confidant, who is usually my wife, that I'm in pain or that I feel inadequate or that I need help. I'm vulnerable. I'm sad. I'm and to, and, and to allow those kinds of feelings to be okay and to be comfortable in my discomfort. You know, it's hard when you're a parent. It's hard to bring that kind of vulnerability, for me anyway, 
as a as a parent because I feel like part of my job is to make sure my kids feel safe. And if they're worried about either their mom or their dad, I worry right. that I'm, you know, sort of taking away some of that safety. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to kind of model that behavior sometimes, I think, when... You have to be their strength and also right. not worry them that you're a mess and also exactly. model vulnerability. Exactly. So did that have anything to do with your I'm books? And I don't know if you have I'm sad or if that was the one that you would be willing to read. Oh, sure. Let me get it. You did it so beautifully. It was as if like you consulted with a mental health professional, like as if you need a developmental psychologist. That's what I mean. Like I, I was thinking, God, this is all the things that I would have said would be awesome in a book, except Mm -hmm. you didn't, you, you certainly didn't ask me, why would you ask me? You didn't know me, but, (laughs) or someone like me, it seems like it was very intuitive. So it's just sort of wild to hear that you're, you're well aware of this. These are not usual qualities for any of us. It's very hard to sit and sit, to watch kids sit in their uncomfortable feelings and teach them that feelings come and go and all different perspectives from other people. And well, one of the things that I had to learn as a parent was, and it took a long time for me to kind of recognize this, was that my job wasn't to make everything okay for my kids. Mm -hmm. My job was to let them know they're loved and to make them feel safe or to help them feel safe. And I'm not even sure that those two things are different. They might be the same thing. But beyond that, I feel like my job is to just sort of be there for them and listen and, and help when they ask for help, but, but not to, to fix their problems. So that's where, that's kind of what this is based in. I'm sad. So this is the second in the I'm series and it features a little girl, a flamingo and a potato. And the first page is the flamingo looking sad and saying, in fact, I'm sad. And the flamingo asks, I think that, I don't know what gender the flamingo is. I'll say it's a girl. Uh, And the flamingo asks her friend, who is a little girl, and and she's swinging in on a swing, and she asks the girl, will I always feel like this? And the little girl says, I don't think so. And the potato, who was their other friend, Mm -hmm. swings in on on another swing and says, I was sad once. And the flamingo says, I didn't know potatoes could be sad. And the potato says, everybody feels sad sometimes. And the little girl says, even astronauts? And the potato says, even astronauts. Hmm. And the girl says, if I was an astronaut, I would never be sad. And the flamingo says, why do sad things happen? And the potato answers, that's just the way it is. But why is that just the way it is? And the potato says, because if it were any other way, then that would be the way it is. And it's not that way. It's this way. And the girl says, that doesn't make any sense at all. It made sense to me when I wrote it. But I realized that maybe it wouldn't make sense to little kids. And the girl says, sigh. And the flamingo says, sigh. And the potato says, sigh. Hmm. Potato. Flamingo, I think you need some good old fashioned cheering up. And because that is everybody's instinct to cheer up somebody when it's when they're sad. And the girl says, yeah, I know it cheers me up when I'm feeling sad. And the flamingo says, what? And the potato says, what? And she says, ice cream. 
And the flamingo says, flamingos don't eat ice cream. And the potato says, potatoes don't eat ice cream. And the potato says, I know what cheers me up when I'm feeling sad. What? What? Dirt. And then we see the potato splashing around in some dirt happily. Which, by the way, I loved so much because, again, it just it's the perspective taking that for everybody has a different way of even making themselves feel better. Exactly. And what makes you feel better may not make the other person feel better. And that's the trouble we get in when we're trying to fix other people's problems mm-hmm. is it, it doesn't it doesn't always connect. And the girl says hockey and the potato says dirt. And the little girl says jungle adventures and the potato says dirt. And the little girl says spy stuff and the potato says soil and the girl says, dirt and soil are the same thing, potato. And the potato says, oh, I thought maybe I'd fool you. And the flamingo says, I'm still sad. Mm. And then the little girl says, well, maybe it's okay just to be sad. And the flamingo says, why would that be okay? And she says, sometimes when I'm sad, it feels kind of good to let myself be sad. And the potato says, that's weird. And the flamingo says, will you still like me if I'm sad again tomorrow? And the girl says, I don't like you just when you're happy. I like you all the time when you're sad or angry or bored or anything else. And the flamingo says, what about you, potato? Will you still like me if I'm sad again tomorrow? And the potato says, I don't even like you now. (laughs) And then the flamingo and the potato sit there for a second. And then everybody bursts into laughter. (laughs) And the flamingo says, that was really funny. And the girl says, do you still feel sad? And the flamingo says, I still feel a little bit sad, but I also feel a little bit better. And I think I'm okay with that. The end. So I I don't even know if you're aware of how exquisite that is. Just, Just imagining if every parent if we all could take that as how we could help our kids learn how to manage difficult feelings, all that you could just replace sad with anything. Although now I want you to do worry, but (laughs) those books can translate to a four-year-old or a 12-year-old. I mean, I don't know that 12-year-olds are necessarily accessing those books, but even an adult needs this to, to think about communication. You can't take away somebody's worries. That's just ridiculous. It'll actually sometimes make them grow. And if anybody has ever, I don't know if you've ever worried before. No, never. I'm I'm (laughs) grateful that I've never had to worry about You're lucky. You're lucky. So (laughs) I, I, I have occasionally, and it's it's a terrible thing when somebody tells you why you shouldn't be worried about something. It's ridiculous. And if you're a really good worrier, you, mm-hmm. you can give them a better reason why you actually should. And then you're even more convinced. And so that's right. it's a terrible habit that we have. When, when a lot of parents will try to explain away those that why you shouldn't be sad or why you shouldn't be worried. So these are so much more profound, these books. I'm making a very bold statement because I feel like I want to be very clear. <laughs> these very short children's books have profound, important lessons for parents and children. And I hope that well, that's kind. It's true, and I really, um, I, I was thinking about all the I'm books that I'm hoping that you can get done in the next year. Well, with the worry one, the, I mean, the the reason I wrote it is just because when I worry, the only thing that I feel like calms me down is exactly the advice that I give in the book, which is, it's first of all to not invalidate my own worry, like things 
you worry is essentially a fear of the future. You're worried that uh-huh. something's going to be terrible. But I, first of all, I remind me, myself of a couple things that most of the time things work out okay. And even when they don't, you get through them. Uh-huh. And the, the, the moment of dealing with a problem is almost always, I mean, it's always manageable and you, you get through it moment by moment. And that anxiety that you feel about whatever may be upcoming, for me, the best way that I can, that I deal with it is to literally just be like, okay, where, where am I right now? Mm -hmm. Right in this moment? Am I driving in my car? Okay. And there, and I'm, everything's fine. The radio's on. There's a song on that I like, like right now in this moment, everything's okay. And I'll deal with whatever happens when it happens. But for now, right this second, it's, it's okay. And that helps. Do you meditate? You sound like you do. <laughs> I wish I did. I don't. I think you might be doing your own version of it when you're sitting in the car and saying that right Maybe. here and right now things are okay. But but yeah. that is the the idea of being very present and mindful can really help with those worries. And yeah. you're right. But, you know, thinking, worrying, uh, fixating on the past is can bend in the direction of sad and depressed and fixating on the future can bend in the direction of anxiety and worries. Mm-hmm. So when you model for your kids, that's obviously the most important thing. But when you can sometimes, if you don't have the language or the opportunity, or it just feels a little bit threatening to have a one-on-one conversation about a deep uh, feeling, reading a book is so helpful with characters that are unrelated, especially with younger children who aren't, Yeah, you know, obviously an older kid knows exactly what you're trying to get ahead. <laughs> So what is your next one? Well, I think it might be, and maybe this is going to be the least useful of all, (laughs) but I wanted to do I'm happy because the first three, I'm bored, I'm sad, and I'm worried have been so negative negative. or dealing with such complicated feelings. But I think happiness can be, if not complicated, at least maybe kind of underappreciated, like those moments Mm -hmm. of happiness and joy where you, you, you can sort of express that in a good way with your friends. I think, I think that can be a fun topic. I put, I'm happy on my list. My wish oh, you list. did? I did. I oh, did good. in fact, because of that reason, because finding it's a really important skill to have a moment where you can notice and appreciate hey, being happy. Yeah. So you didn't do this when you had younger children. Did, did mm-hmm. this evolve from telling them stories or is this really totally unrelated? (laughs) No, it's related. I mean, I started writing kids books when they were kids, right? but this series didn't start until they were older kids. And the first one I'm bored just came out of the (laughs) incessant whining of I'm bored. (laughs) Yeah. And it was, it was just, it it was just inspired by that. And I was like, all right, let me write something about this because I don't think I've seen a book about um, boredom. I'm sure there. I'm sh- there must be them. There must be ones out there, but I hadn't not seen it. Not this good. So I thought, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not as good. So I thought I'd write my own. No, I love that too because that's another. Yeah, I mean, every parent feels those has oh. those moments of just like, and now everybody finds ways to fill the space so much. I'm sad. I'm not sure how kids get time in their heads to just be bored. Right. And I'm bored was similar in that you know, the little girl ends up being put in the position of the exasperated parent. 
who has all those frustrations of, well, why don't you do this? And why don't you do this? And why don't you do this? And realizing like nothing, like there's no good suggestion to the board kit. Nothing will alleviate that. And so again, it's like your job isn't to fix it. So in the end, the little girl kind of throws up her hands and it's like, all right, well, you deal with it. So if you could capture sort of five of your biggest lessons, now that you're the parent of almost adults. Yes. Would don't try to fix everything be up there? I, that might be number one for me. Okay. Number two, <laughs> this is going to sound stupid, but I really mean it, is play the odds. It's like hmm. we worry so much as parents about our kids and about every little thing that's going on with them. And most of the time, the vast majority of the time, kids turn out okay. Like they grow up, they turn out okay. They they end up going to college and they end up having careers or they end up finding their own path in whatever that path may be. And the amount of, I think so much of our experience as parents could be, could be made better if we didn't, if we just sort of played the odds and we were like, you're going to be fine. And believing that, believing that they're going to be okay and trusting that they're going to be okay, letting them make mistakes and not feeling like you have to intercede every moment to make sure that, that to protect them. You know, there's, there's times obviously when you need to protect your kid when they're in physical danger, but there's times when I feel like it's okay to let them make a mistake. Most of the time, I feel like it's okay to let them make mistakes. I think it's more than okay. It's, it helps, yeah. it helps inoculate them so that they can function when they inevitably make mistakes. Of course. And know they what need that to. feels like. Yeah. But there's a rite of passage when you have your first baby, I think, and younger kids to start the process being fixated on minutia and hoping that everything, you know, not, not thinking as, bigger picture of playing the odds. And then I think you evolve <laughs> right. into that. Right. A, a newborn, I would say <laughs> you have to, you have to take care of pretty well. <laughs> I, I guess I'm not advocating just letting your newborn, leaving it out on the step and trusting it'll be fine more as they get a little bit older. And you know, you, you just, you open that circle a little bit, you know, as the months go on, as the years go on yes. of that space where they can kind of trip and fall and, and they'll be okay. I wasn't really great on the playground either. <laughs> yeah. It probably made it worse to be a psychologist because I was aware of the damage I was doing. Oh, yeah. Don't the children of psychologists always end up the most the most me messed up? I like to think that that might be true for, <laughs> for clinical psychologists. Oh, okay. But I'm developmental. <laughs> oh, got it. Okay. So it's a different lens. But yeah, everyone says that to me all the time. So I <laughs> try to... Let that go and hope. My kids say it to me all the time. Of course, I would. And also, I feel like it's not my job to make them good people, right? Mm -hmm. they, are, they are who they are. It's my job to do my best with, the, with what I've got. <laughs> <laughs> right, however crappy it might be. It's like, look. <laughs> this, is, this was the best version of them. That's what I did. But, but they're wonderful, so. Uh, number three, I think it would be dessert is fine. <laughs> every day, eat. every meal. Yeah. I don't know about every meal every day. If you want dessert, eat dessert. It's fine. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's fine. You don't need to, you don't need to stress out about making sure every calorie that goes into your kid's mouth is the healthiest calorie available. Mm -hmm. Maybe that speaks to the anxiety and to the, uh, 
playing the odds. Four, for little kids in particular, is read to them every day, every night. That's probably an obvious one. But it not only encourages a love of reading, which neither of my children have adopted. Yet. Yet. But it gives them, it's just, it's, it's just a very warm and loving way to communicate in a very kind of intimate way at the end of the day uh, through these stories, through whatever stories that you're, you're reading. The other, here's a final piece of parenting advice that isn't about how I parent so much as it is. It has given me a fair amount of satisfaction. No, not even satisfaction. It has been a relief for me to learn to not judge other parents. <laughs> like we're here, all here. trying to do our best. And when I see parenting that I disagree with, short of like physical abuse or something, of course, um, I, I I work really hard to trust that they're like the kids are doing their best, the parents are doing their best, and I don't know any more than anybody else. Like we're all trying to figure it out, and it's a hard job. And you know, any anything that anybody can take from what I say, if it's helpful at all great, but I, I definitely don't hold myself up as somebody who knows any more about parenting than anybody else. Here are my show notes. Talking to kids about difficult feelings has disturbingly taken on new meaning since we recorded this episode very recently. With two more mass shootings in the short distance between recording with Michael and airing this, I wanted to briefly address questions about how to talk about these events with children, particularly when we ourselves cannot make sense of them. For years, when something tragic and seemingly extremely unlikely happened, I used to emphasize that it was most important to reassure our children that above all, they are completely safe, that the scary event was distant from them, and that grown-ups are going to make sure they are okay, and that right now, we are okay. I recognize that feels harder and harder to do, not to mention disingenuous in this scary and uncertain time. So the conversation is a bit trickier, and it's filled with our own emotions about the devastating and persistent pain going on in our backyards. While I can't say we should promise our children that nothing will happen to them or to the people they love, I do recommend that we all reach inside ourselves and muster up the energy and courage to continue to reassure them that most people really are good, that we have taken measures to make them safe at school and at home, and that we will not stop trying to protect them or any children from these tragedies. For older children, there's more of a discussion, and you can have this and lead it into thinking about action, about looking outward with compassion rather than focusing on fear, and about hope, because we need our children to have energy and hope for the future. I'm not above sharing words from those who can help me communicate difficult things with my children or who might be able to inspire them to action without causing panic. So I often find inspiring things that I can call on. Toni Morrison said, I know the world is bruised and bleeding, and though it is important not to ignore its pain, it is also critical to refuse to succumb to its malevolence. Like failure, chaos leads to information that can lead to knowledge, even wisdom like art. And of course, for younger children, remember to use what Mr. Rogers said. Look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. 
And I might even add that for the older school-age children, be a helper. We can always be helpers. With the caveat that while we want to encourage constructive activities and actions on behalf of others, we also shouldn't burden kids with the undue responsibility of saving the world. It's a real balancing act. It's also important to keep your child's age and temperament in mind. It's never just one conversation. It's more important to give kids the sense that they can always come talk with you, that you will listen with an open heart, and that every question doesn't have to lead into a lengthy rant or talk about the injustice of it all or the quotes that I said above. Sometimes it's just letting them know the channels of communication are open and that you are a source of comfort, support, and safety. You would be amazed at how effective it is to just check in with them, be present, and simply just connect physically. And you can just gauge whether or not you should use words or open a conversation or just be there. Sometimes kids have trouble expressing that they want to talk or connect, so you can watch for clues. Like if they're hovering around you when you're doing the dishes or other household activities where they're usually kind of doing their own thing, that might be a sign that they need a check-in. Keep your explanations developmentally appropriate. So remember, preschool kids are a little bit in a protected bubble. So they're only going to know what you really talk about with them because they're with you. And they don't need the kind of information that people are talking about. Whereas school-age children, you can be sure that they're going to hear about things. So you might want to be the first resource for them. And middle schoolers and older are going to want to know, might have really big feelings about it, and might be propelled towards action. At the same time, no matter what age, please do not show children the news. Do not endlessly watch the news yourself or react passionately to the news in front of them. It's not good for you and it's not good for any age child. Even if they appear to be playing innocently in the corner and not paying attention, children are often aware of what you're doing and watching or listening to the TV, even the radio. And so what may not be upsetting to an adult and what you think is just a discussion could end up being very upsetting or confusing for a kid. Also, images can be really hard to get out of anybody's head, especially children's. Scary information coming from an outside source can be way too much. And younger kids have absolutely no sense that what they see on TV in a loop, repeated, isn't something happening over and over again. So just keep that in mind because the news just repeats the same thing. And to a young child's brain, that's just an, an event happening over and over. If you find yourself fixating, shocked, and disturbed, try to take a breath and think of how you want them to handle these moments in their lives. Imagine that you and they will be more helpful when you can breathe and think clearly, and then you can model for your children how to navigate these difficult moments. And when you talk about painful events, start by asking them what they have heard or what they know and what they may hear about. Leave space for the open-ended questions to be answered and to just listen to their responses. Not talking about it at all with school-age children is tempting, but it can make the event even more threatening in your child's mind because silence suggests that what has occurred is too horrible to even speak about or that you don't know what's happened. And you really want your kids to always view you as the person who knows what's going on, 
who's going to be the safe place for them to get accurate information. And so if it's all over the news and all over social media and everybody's talking about it and your children go to school, chances are they've either heard about it or they're going to hear about it. And as your child explains what they know, listen for misinformation, misconceptions, underlying fears and concerns, and understand that the information's going to change and we're going to get new information and gently correct inaccuracies. Again, if your child can lean on you for accurate information, they won't trust and seek that out in all of these other places that may give them inappropriate information. If you anticipate that they will hear something at school when they're not with you, then you can explicitly let them know that they are going to hear about something really scary and upsetting that happened and tell them. And you can remind them that you are there for them if they have any questions or thoughts or just want to share what they've learned and let them take the lead so that you know you can drop it if they don't want to continue the discussion and you can expand if they do want to continue. It's an ongoing discussion anyway. It is not a one-time sit-down-and-freak-your-child-out discussion. So once you've figured out what they know, you can get a sense if they need a reminder of concrete safety plans that are in place in your family, in school, and in the larger world. Remember, they've grown up with fire drills, they've had earthquake drills, and sadly, they have now had lockdown drills. They do it in school. It's a way to remind them that grown-ups have a plan to protect them. And as hard as it can be, try to be that positive role model that reminds them of those grown-ups. Consider that you are sharing your feelings about the events at a level they can understand, and you can even express sadness and empathy for the victims and their families and worries about gun laws and other things that are really upsetting you right now. It's also really important to share ideas for coping and emphasizing the quick response by law enforcement, by medical personnel, by heroic bystanders, by people who are making rescues part of their lives and thinking about what they can do in the future to help. And again, this will open up more conversations about helping and coming at this from a compassionate perspective where they can be both grateful and calm for their ability to help and what steps they can take to become a helper. And as age appropriate, you want to let younger kids be protected from some of this ugliness while you give older kids an awareness that they can use their voices to make changes. And one other thing, if your child doesn't feel like talking about it and they don't seem disturbed or sad and you're sitting there a wreck, that's totally normal too, even when they hear about it. And that's not because they're cold and unfeeling people. It's because they feel safe. They are comfortable and accept the fact that they're safe, probably much more than we do. And so they're going about their daily lives of being self-absorbed and young, which is very age-appropriate. If you do notice that your child is anxious or has a lot of questions and it's not going away for more than two weeks, keep an eye out for any behavior changes such as change in sleep or appetite, persistent emotional outbursts or sadness. This may mean you need to seek additional outside support. You can create a stay calm plan and practice it each day or as needed. You do this with your child You invite them to join you or have them just notice when you do it until they kind of become interested and want to participate. 
And you can adjust and create each part with them according to what works for them, what they're thinking about, what they're worried about. So I'm just giving you an example of a three-part stay calm plan. First, take three deep breaths to calm your nervous system. You can place your hand on your heart to help increase the feel-good hormone in your body and decrease the stress hormones. Second, pick a helpful thought out loud to say, such as, most things that are bad have a low chance of happening, or there are so many grown-ups doing what they can to protect people in my city or in my town and in my home, or even, I will have my own life and family before I start to worry a lot about my family now. If someone needs to worry about my family, my grown-ups can take that on. And lastly, do something fun or interesting as part of your stay calm plan. Think of a few nighttime options with your child and a few daytime options. At night, it might be just reading a book or recalling a moment in the day that made you giggle or to talk or snuggle with one of your stuffies. And in the daytime, it could be watching a happy video or putting on fun music to dance to, going on a mindful walk, connecting with a friend. It's totally personal. Thank you for listening, and please join me next week for a lighter discussion with Jennifer Anderson, registered dietitian, for a chat about nutrition, picky eaters, and setting up good eating habits. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and DM me on Raising Good Humans podcast for feedback, questions, and comments.